Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Barn. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Jason Hickel back to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Jason is an economic anthropologist, author, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. He is a visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics and senior lecturer at Goldsmiths, University of London. His most recent book is Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. So thank you very much, Jason, for joining me once again on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Yes, my pleasure. It's good to be back, Fergal. Yes, uh, it's a uh, lot's happened since we last spoke, for sure. Maybe just for our <laughs> listeners, if you could tell us a little bit about your background, your work, your preoccupations, Jason. Sure, yeah. So I am originally from Eswatini, a small country in Southern Africa. Uh, I studied in the US and um, I'm living in London these days. I'm an economic anthropologist um, at the LSE and also at Goldsmiths University of London. And I work on international developments and issues of global inequality and colonial history and increasingly now also on ecological economics, which is kind of my main focus. And I have a, a new book that just came out um, this year uh, that basically provides an introduction to degrowth and post-growth thinking, and it's called Less is More. Yes, and we're going to talk about that. I'm very much looking forward to a fascinating, wide-ranging book with lots of ideas, lots to think about. Now, before we go on to talk about, about, about uh, degrowth and post-growth and so forth, uh, just wondering, uh, in particular, the time that's uh, elapsed since we last spoke, but today there seems to be tremendous momentum. There seems to be a big shift uh, in terms of uh, governments, particularly in the United States, uh, not only in terms of awareness and acceptance of climate change, but also uh, in terms of commitments to net zero, the world of business, uh, tsunami, or, wrong word, but uh, more and more <laughs> corporations making significant commitments to net zero, financial institutions doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, should we be optimistic is uh, just a question I want to start with. And let's start with business because it's, it's um, uh, Mark Carney said that this, that net zero was greatest economic opportunity of our age we see it's 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 a dominant theme in the the, the the business press and you know huge commitments on the face of it uh what looked like to net zero and a growing number of corporations doing that yeah so yeah i mean clearly we should welcome uh many of these new targets obviously especially the u.s one is a major shift in ambition from the Trump administration, so that's quite important. Uh, at the same time, we should recognize that there are several significant problems that unfortunately, because of the excitement around these new commitments, have kind of fallen out of our conversation. So the first problem is this, that the new uh, Biden administration plan is in fact not consistent with, uh, with, uh, with, with keeping temperatures under 1.5 degrees Celsius as per the Paris Agreement. So that's a problem. The second issue is that it grossly violates climate justice principles. Now, what I mean by this is the fact that um, under the Paris Agreement, we know that to keep emission, to keep temperatures under 1.5 or 2 degrees, um, uh, the global economy needs to reduce emissions to zero by 2050. But that's a global average target. We know that high-income nations, because they are responsible for the vast majority of historical emissions, they need to decarbonize much more quickly. And the consensus on this is 
um, a fair rate of decarbonization would be around reaching zero by 2030. So, um, so effectively, the US and other um, rich nation climate plans that aim for 2050 are violating this principle of climate justice and are continuing to colonize the shared atmospheric space that's uh, um, that's rightly that rightfully belongs to poorer countries, effectively. Right. So right. that's I could, yeah. When, when you talk about uh, 1.5, I mean, I've seen uh, I think a, a number of scientists recently were, wrote about net zero, and they were saying nobody that's not really a realistic figure. It's already probably in the atmosphere already. We're looking at two degrees. Some people say three degrees. Um, probably a, a, a lot to discuss there. But in terms of a step forward, in terms not just the symbolism, but it, it, it really is a big step. It's it's a, a significant uh, increase in in the commitment, and it's it seems to be building. Yes, yes. I mean, clearly, it's a, it's objectively better than what we had before, but it is also objectively inadequate. And I think we have to underline that fact. Um, and, and clearly, especially from the perspective of the Global South, I mean, if you read Global South uh, media reports on these plans, they're actively calling out the fact that these are inadequate, right, that they violate the principle of climate justice, which, which is in the Paris Agreement. So this is not good enough. And, the, and Western media has not done a good job of, of raising this this concern. Right. Yeah. Is there a question here? Because when you look even at the scale of the commitments that the, that, that, that the Biden's made today, it, it entails a massive change in, in, in the way the economy operates, the scale of the, the economy, uh, even just looking at it at, at the level that it, it operates today. How do you square this question of, of what governments can do and what the populace feel. I mean, America famously polarized. Uh, there has been some movement, but still extremely divided on, on political lines. Um, is, is there some sense in which, you know, there is a, a window of possibility? And, and, and I think many people would, would, would say that Biden has done much more or, or whether what happens and how, whether he gets it through or not is another question, but has made uh, uh, these steps in a much more dramatic way than anybody possibly could have imagined. Is there not also a danger of, of, of overstepping the mark, of, of jumping in there and, and, and making commitments that, that are going to entail such a massive change that the, the people won't just won't put up with it? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure if that's quite right because if we look at um, if we look at surveys coming out of Europe recently, we find that a majority of people in European countries actually support much more ambitious targets. So they so they clearly support um, explicitly support uh, uh, zero by twenty thirty targets, right? And that's um, that's a that's they say that they say that, Jason. But the reality of you know when we start to see these things, they're quite complicated. We saw what happened to Jean in France with the with the diesel tax. So. Surveys are one thing, and I guess Europe is is another compared to the United States. Um, it's not a big issue, and and you know I, I guess it, it, it's it's, a, it's something you could discuss one way or another. No, I mean to me this is quite important. I mean I think that the um, the main obstacles to aggressive uh, uh, climate policy are not average people. Actually, they are elites because there are significant industries that are going to have to you know, that are going to have to scale down, specifically the fossil fuel industry and the auto, the automotive industry, et cetera, um, in order to make these kinds of ambitions feasible, right? So now or, or, or recent. Um, Jean, I mean, look, the, the, the way that these, uh, that's, um, um, that's uh, the, the policy was introduced in France uh, was extremely, re you know, regressive. I mean, it actively hurt the working class while yeah. letting richer people off the hook. I mean, so this is a lesson to us, which is that, which is that you know principles of equity and justice 
um, uh, have to be at the core of, of, of any shift towards aggressive climate policy. And that's something that France did. Uh, uh, absolutely. But if you're operating in a, in a situation where they're not already, you know, these principles of justice that we're talking about aren't embedded in the, the kind of state of capitalism, the state of the world economy today. So this, you know, uh, th there seems to be a kind of a trade-off, this, this urgency need, need to move forward. But if you're operating within a, a power structure, within a system of, of, of relationships and operations that already, you know, are, are inequitable, that don't have these principles established at the center of them, what's going to happen? Well, this is why we have to call for a significant social change. And it's as simple as that, right? I mean, there's just, there's no sense in calling for radical climate policy if you're not also um, addressing significant underlying social inequities. And so this has to be, uh, you know, this has to be part of our conversation. And right and right now it's not, you know, to, to, be, to be frank, right now we're, we're discussing the climate crisis as a matter of technology rather than as a matter of, um, of social transformation. And we need to bring the latter, you know, into the picture as well. And, and the reason is because of this, because we know that um, it's, it's certainly possible for rich nations like the US and UK to decarbonize by 2030, um, right? Consistent with people's actual desires and demands. The tricky part is that this is not possible to achieve um, with, uh, you know, with our existing commitments to perpetual economic growth. And the reason is because more growth uh, means more energy demands, and more energy demands makes rapid decarbonization significantly more difficult to achieve. It's kind of like running yeah. up a down escalator or something like that, right? You sort of, it's a difficult battle to fight. And so yeah. in ecological economics, we call for a fundamentally different approach that high-income high nations should abandon GDP growth as an objective and actively scale down excess energy use so that we can decarbonize more quickly. And that, and, and that can be done in a fair and just way, and that's what we call for. Okay, and I, I'd like to come on to that in a moment. But just the, the other uh, element of the, the the momentum, the shift, the the, the optimism, maybe in terms of, uh, or, or certainly the the um, discussion of these topics, is the uh, momentum around net zero and corporations committing to to net zero uh, in, in, in over various timeframes. Yes, I mean. Um... Uh, again, I mean, I, I absolutely welcome it. I think this is important momentum. It's cl clearly the conversation has changed now from a couple of years ago. Um, uh, I, I worry a little bit about, about the net zero language. The net zero framing is quite concerning, actually, because we know that this leaves significant loopholes for offsets, uh, specifically, which we know to be problematic. And it also leaves loopholes for... Um, for negative emissions uh, schemes like BECS, for example, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is very widely assumed in you know, existing IPCC climate mitigation scenarios. So, and, and these are considered to be quite problematic um, uh, by scientists for a variety of reasons we can discuss. But the crucial thing is that the net zero framing is, is, is maybe is, is easy and maybe attractive, but we need to be calling for something much firmer, which is uh, which is, you know, a clear commitment to zero emissions by um, specific dates consistent with the Paris Agreement. And ultimately, what that requires is binding commitments to reduce fossil fuel use with something like a declining annual cap. I mean, th that's the, you know, that's the way to, to realize these pledges. I mean, the, the, the pledges and words are great, but we need clear policy commitments. And what's interesting to me is that reading the Biden plan as published on the White House website... Um, it doesn't even mention fossil fuels. Uh, and to me, that's a red flag. <laughs> I think that we have to have a more explicit conversation about, um, about actively scaling down fossil fuel use. 
yeah, big topic. Uh, we'll see if we can get that in, in a little bit later. I want to come to the heart of, 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 of what you, you're, you're interested in at the moment, what you're writing about, what less is more is about, and what's, what's, what's a really rich uh, intellectual area, certainly uh, the whole question of degrowth. Um, now, I, I, it's, I was thinking about it uh, today, and I was thinking one, one of the issues maybe that I have with it is a little bit, it's it's hard to somehow, I guess, uh, conceptualize something that's not something, <laughs> you know, uh, the absence of something. Uh, so, you know, the, the absence of growth, um, thinking about that. And I'm just wondering, it's called degrowth. How is that less different, let's say, from, from less growth? And, and, and why would you say that... Uh, I won't get ahead of ourselves here, but but uh, <laughs> conventional economists have, have have pretty much taken against it in in pretty uh, strong terms. Yeah, it's really interesting to see. Um, I mean, degrowth has been these ideas have been around for a long time, for about ten years, um, uh, and they have they have an interesting history, which maybe we can discuss. But what's interesting is that only in the past couple of years have they have these ideas exploded into mainstream discourse and. Um, and research uh, is moving really quickly on this front, and social movements are taking it up. Um, and to my surprise, it's become um, a really quite popular idea in lots of circles. Now, okay, so what is degrowth? Um, we, you know, we define it as a planned reduction of excess resource and energy use in high-income nations designed to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a safe, just, and equitable way. So this is fundamentally different from, say, a recession, which is unplanned, chaotic, destructive uh, to poor people, um, has, has marginal uh, benefits in terms of ecological impacts, and ends up you know, increasing inequality, et cetera. So, so, we, you know, so we have a different word for this because it's a fundamentally different thing. It's an analytical term that is clearly defined in the ecological economics literature. And the main, I, I guess the main principle here is that Instead of assuming that all sectors of the economy should grow all the time, which is the existing orthodox economics assumption, we should think about instead what sectors we actually want to expand, things like renewable energy, public transportation, public health care, you know, et cetera, um, and what sectors are clearly too big and are socially less necessary and should be actively scaled down, right? Things like um, SUV production, private jet production, fast fashion, industrial beef, advertising, the arms industry, et cetera. Um, so we argue that this is a more rational way to manage an economy um, rather than this kind of aggregate approach where, I mean, I mean, think about it. In our existing economy, we pursue GDP growth. $100 of tear gas is um, considered equivalent to $100 of education, right? This is This is crazy. So we have to take a more... A more rational approach to the way that we that we manage the economy. Now, um, orthodox economists, as you noted, have taken against degrowth primarily because they start from the assumption that more GDP is necessary for improving human well-being, um, and that's this is just a taken-for-granted assumption that people operate with. Um, but interestingly, there is in fact no evidence for this. Um, because we know that past a certain point, which high-income nations have long since surpassed, the relationship between GDP and social indicators breaks down or becomes neg uh, negligible. So what actually matters in terms of people's well-being, livelihoods, and so on, is um, a fair distribution of income and access to universal public services that people need to live good lives. The empirical evidence is very clear that this is what delivers strong social outcomes and 
um, life satisfaction and happiness, et cetera, et cetera. So the key thing here is that you want to um, organize the economy to meet people's needs directly rather than hoping GDP growth will somehow magically trickle down to do that for you, right? Which is a sort of a rational assumption. Um, so yeah, so in other, in other words, organize the economy around meeting human needs and ecological regeneration rather than around perpetual growth and elite accumulation. And the exciting thing about this is that we have, um, we now have uh, really fantastic evidence showing that we can achieve, um, you know, high levels of human well-being with significantly less resource and energy use than high income nations uh, presently use, right? Like, and, and by, by significantly less, I mean in the region of 80% less, okay? So it's, we know it's fully possible to scale down resource and energy use to sustainable levels consistent with rapid decarbonization um, and at the same time deliver flourishing lives for all. Uh, the reason that our economies don't do that, I mean, right now we have economies where we have high levels of resource use and tremendous amounts of poverty, and even in high-income nations. Why? Precisely because our economies are organized around elite accumulation rather than around human needs. So the scholarship in, economic, in ecological economics wants to reverse that. Um, and, uh, and again, we have evidence to demonstrate this is more than possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's apparent that a simple word uh, packs in a lot of material and a lot of ideas in there to discuss. Who is the audience for these ideas? I mean, people on the street are, 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 I mean, walking around thinking about economic growth as an idea. It's quite abstract. Who, who, who's the audience that you're, you know, that these ideas are being presented to to bring to, to bring on board to convince them that this is a, a a powerful way of reframing and thinking about what we do economically? Yeah. So, um, I mean, clearly, this uh, this this term uh, circulates primarily in two spaces. The first is in, in academic research. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, degrowth is an, is, a, is an analytical term that is used um, in ecological economics and is increasingly being taken up across heterodox economics approaches, right? So there's, there's lots of interesting synergies that are happening. The second place is in social movements. And this is interesting because, um, uh, because demands for degrowth in high-income nations actually come largely from the global South. I mean, the deep roots of this idea um, lie in the global south uh, in the anti-colonial struggle, actually, um, where global south nations have been recognizing the fact, or social movements in global south nations have recognized that um, that high levels of consumption in the global north uh, are colonizing, you know, shared atmospheric space and causing ecological breakdown in the south, um, and also um, putting extraordinary pressure on resource extractivism in the global south with with sig significant. Uh, um, negative implications for southern ecosystems and communities. And so um, degrowth has been a demand for, for global justice in the sense of, look, we have to share this planet. Um, you're, over, you know, you're overusing resources and energy. Uh, so the global north needs to, needs to reduce and converge with the global south at levels of resource use that are consistent with universal well-being. Uh, you know, and, and ecological stability. So ultimately, this is you know this emerges from from the global justice movements, uh, but has strong ties to um, to uh, to research in uh, in climate mitigation. 
right? Because when you talk about the global, global north, that, that again, probably is not exactly correct, is it? Because we, we know that it is the wealthiest top percentage that, that uh, accounts for, you know, by and large, a huge, 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 I've got what the figure is, something like, is it 1% accounts for 40%, uh, something like that. But, uh, you know, massive bias towards the wealthiest people. So it's not the global north per se, it's the, the 1%. Yeah, it's true. I mean, of course, you know, our data on on emissions and resource use is primarily um, bounded at the national level. And so this is why we use countries as units of analysis. That's, of course, also where, um, where you know, the level at which legislation and policy happens. And so it, it is meaningful to talk about countries. But at the same time, you're right. Within countries in the global north, there's significant disparities in um, in uh, you know between classes when it comes to responsibility for this problem. Now, crucially, I want to point something out, which is a really essential to um, to degrowth research, which is to say this is not actually a matter of individual consumption habits and responsibility, right? Like the mainstream environments movement has has um, has predominantly focused on a narrative of individual responsibility, and degrowth uh, rejects that discourse. I mean, of course. Um, you know, we know that uh, we need to make individual choices to whatever, turn off the lights and fly less and eat less beef, et cetera. That's clearly important. But at the same time, um, we want to point to the, the deeper structure of the economic system, which is a system that is organized around and dependent on perpetual expansion. And, and in such a system, uh, individuals become victims because you have a system that overproduces for the sake, again, of um, primarily elite accumulation. And then uh, uh, people have to somehow mop up that overproduction. And so we get bombarded with advertisements and planned obsolescence, et cetera, to, to, uh, to maintain, to sort of mop up the excess production that the system generates. And so ultimately, um, the, you know, the problem is our, is our capitalist economic system. Uh, and, uh, and we need to address the problem at that structural cause. Are uh, degrowthers and green growthers good bedfellows? <laughs> um, no, I mean, obviously, there, there have been really uh, engaging and sometimes heated debates between uh, green growth proponents and degrowth uh, researchers. Well, what's at stake here, ideologically, or in terms of the ideas, there's been, there, there does seem to be, I hate to use the word again, momentum uh, with, 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 green, with green growth, the Green New Deal, and so forth. Um, it, it's got to be a good thing, no? Well, I mean, it depends on what you mean by green growth. Um, the, you know, the main problem that, uh, that, um, that degrowth research has pointed out, okay, and, and this is quite crucial, is that there are, there, are, there are significant empirical questions to be raised about green growth narratives, right? Um, now, this is no small thing. Um, uh, ecological economics um, is, is scientifically rigorous, uh, specifically because it knows it has to go up against these dominant assumptions in public discourse and in neoclassical and orthodox thought. And so um, this, is, this is interesting research. We effectively are able to demonstrate that, look, when it comes to the relationship between GDP and energy, um, more GDP growth means more energy demands relative to what it would otherwise be. And that makes decarbonization more difficult and, um, and probably impossible to achieve the Paris Agreement goals with growth as usual. Which is why you get, you know, green growthers end up relying on um, uh, crazy uh, net negative emissions technology schemes or geoengineering or unprecedented uh, rates of efficiency improvement, et cetera. I mean, we can always dream, right? That's fantastic. But ultimately, we're facing a significant existential crisis that requires a hard-nosed approach to empirical evidence. 
And the empirical okay, so can I stop you there and ask a question? So you are you saying that empirically this empirically the degrowth is on stronger foundations than green growth is? Yes, yes, it is clearly. And I say that as someone who's deeply engaged in this research and as someone who used to be um, a proponent of green growth narratives and had to change my mind <laughs> upon engaging with this literature. Sorry, what's the evidence here? What, what's the difference in the, the empirical uh, evidence, the, the strength of, of, of the arguments? Yes, well, this is what I was trying to explain with relation to the, the energy GDP relation, right? So, um, so again, rising GDP entails rising energy demands, makes it more difficult to decarbonize quickly. Um, and so as a result, you get, uh, you get scenarios that have to square you know, you know, have to reconcile um, perpetual GDP growth with with uh, Paris climate targets by relying on things like um, unprecedented rates of technological efficiency improvements and negative emissions technologies, et cetera. If you take those out of the equation or accept more realistic um, assumptions, then you're yeah. forced to um, to to face a different kind of reality, which is that the only way to accomplish decarbonization consistent with Paris Agreement targets is to actively scale down energy use. Um, and we have to have a conversation about what that about what that looks like. So in degrowth scholarship, we um, we say this should be done directly. Uh, we should actively uh, scale down unnecessary industries, industries that are clearly not uh, are not necessary for human well being. And we can and anyone can identify what those are. It also entails ending the practice of planned obsolescence. You know, extending product lifespans, introducing rights to repair, to reduce material throughput. Reducing material throughput obviously reduces energy demand as well. We can limit advertising. We can shift from private cars to public transportation, et cetera, et cetera. These are all ways that we can actively scale down energy demand, also scale down resource use, and uh, and achieve rapid decarbonization and reverse ecological breakdown. Um, now, the question then becomes, you know, when we talk about these kinds of policies, the question always becomes, what about jobs? And this is an important question. And the reason we can't have conversations so far about scaling down unnecessary industries is because of the question of jobs, right? We can't even talk about closing coal plants or airports or, um, you know, et cetera, uh, much less whatever SUV production, et cetera, because of the question of jobs. And so how does ecological economics deal with this question, they propose a, a quite simple answer, um, which is to shorten the working week. Uh, um, so basically, as our economy requires less labor, then we shorten the working week and distribute and, you know, and share necessary labor more evenly uh, to maintain full employment. And so livelihoods are not affected. And this, at the same time, we call for a significant, uh, significantly fair distribution of income. So again, livelihoods are not affected. This is a justice-oriented approach. Um, and also we call for the uh, significant expansion of public services, again, so that people have access to the resources they need to live flourishing lives um, without needing an ever-growing economy in order to do so. So these policy interventions are quite well thought out, and, um, and we know that they would work. But the main obstacle, again, is not, um, is not ordinary people. The main obstacle is... Um, is you know uh, powerful class factions <laughs> that stands to lose because they benefit so prodigiously from the existing you know growth oriented system. Very, very interesting. I mean, some of what you say sounds very similar to some socialist ideas that you hear around, but that don't seem to get very much time and don't get seem to um, you know 
people don't take those ideas seriously are very critical of, of, of socialist ideas. Well, I mean, what we're effectively calling, I mean, in terms of the, um, in terms of the social dimensions, uh, what I've described is effectively not dissimilar from, you know, robust social democratic welfare states that are widely used or, you know, in Northern Europe, at least before the neoliberal attack. <laughs> so there's nothing particularly outlandish about them. We also know that they're very, they're very popular, right? We know that, um, you know, universal public health care and education are extremely popular. We know that um, things like a shorter working week and a job guarantee pull very high. These are popular policies. Um, now, uh, um, now there's a question to be asked, though. You know, given the fact that uh, the policies I've described are, you know, are popular, um, why is it that our existing economy doesn't look this way or why are we not having conversations about this? And I think the main reason is that um, we don't really have very democratic societies, right? Like our media um, landscape is uh, is primarily dominated by by corporate interests and in the UK billionaires, right, who control the press in large part um, uh, in terms of the tabloid press, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but also, our political system is largely is largely captured in the sense of um, you know, uh, big money can buy political campaigns, and we know how that works. And that um, that really does limit. Yeah. It really does limit the extent to which. Um, it's very interesting. You you say that, and and um, clearly strong arguments, as you say, uh, for the capture, political capture, uh, for the media, and so forth. So I guess that raises the question of of the kinds of policies that we need uh, to actually institute this 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 kind of uh, degrowth uh, economic scenario. It, one gets the impression that the that there's a lot of bottom up uh, ideas here, but at the same time, institutional broad institutional changes would be needed. We've seen a very rapid change, in, whether it's temporary or not, in the in conceptualization of the role of government in 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 the economy in general uh, during the COVID crisis. Is, is that good news for for people who think about degrowth? What is the relationship, the necessary relationship between? Uh, it, institutional change political change and, and degrowth yeah this is interesting it's interesting you raised the covid question because i mean uh okay on the one hand let's face it right the covid crisis um was a classic recession that was deeply destructive to poor people and increased inequality etc right so there's nothing about that that we actually that we actually want in terms of what happened to the economy at the same time there are clearly things that happens that we can learn from so for example uh, the crisis demonstrated that governments actually have the power to scale down whole sectors of the economy at the touch of a button, when previously we were told, obviously, this is impossible. Now, imagine that instead of closing down things like schools and cafes and gyms, things that we actually need and are actually really important to human well-being and conviviality and, uh, you know, and so on, what if instead we use that power to scale down um, you know, SUV production, industrial beef, the, the industrial beef industry, the arms industry, et cetera. Um, we, we now know that governments have the power to do that. We've seen that in action. And so what if we use that power differently? And this time, um, instead of allowing mass unemployment to happen, you do as, as we've called for, which is to shorten the working week, maybe introduce a, a public job guarantee, again, a very popular policy um, to allow people to get well-paying jobs, uh, doing socially necessary things like ecological regeneration, installing solar panels, retrofitting buildings, et cetera, et cetera, um, and also reduce inequality at the same time. What if we approached it that way? So, there, you know, there clearly are things that we learned from the crisis that we could deploy differently. 
Um, but we also learned that governments have the power to do things like set mandatory production orders. You know, we did that for ventilators or set price controls. We did that for PPE. In an emergency, governments have this power. And given the scale of the climate emergency, uh, we know the governments could use that power for Green New Deal purposes, you know, uh, ret- you know, like, sh- you know, shifting factories from SUV production to um, to uh, solar panel production, for example. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we have in mind. Uh, that this was done, obviously, uh, during uh, during World War II, and this is the reason that uh, you know the Allies were successful because of this kind of government, you know, government uh, government mo- mobilization in the face of a crisis, and that's clearly the kind of mobilization we need now. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting you, you say that because I guess there is a tension there between, as you say, this this sudden uh, we suddenly found a money tree and we suddenly found that we can you know the governments can do the turn turn, turn on, on and off different sectors as you say and close things down and at the same time there is a a, a I guess a kind of boundary that people have uh, as to their own personal behaviour what's acceptable and what's not acceptable where the government you know drawing the line and what governments can can say and how involved they can get in what maybe heretofore were seen as private areas of behavior and you 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 know you mentioned things like SUVs and uh you know one person's uh SUV is another person's I don't know beef uh in, in the sense that you know once you get involved in people's personal preferences for what they want it, it it's a tricky terrain we've seen it the Biden uh plan has been characterized laughingly by the Republicans as you know stopping beef eating in America and stopping the burgers and so forth but it is a delicate area in terms of the you you know what a government can 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 do and and get involved in what you know people see as as quite kind of personal choices oh sure there's no question and like n- you know nobody should sugarcoat this but at the same time we do this all the time actually right like there, there are lots of things that you know there are lots of sectors of the economy that we regulate quite heavily and everybody is fine with that because we know it's good for our health or it protects our society you know such as domestic arms sales or um you know cigarette sales uh you know we have um we have speed limits things like that i mean there's lots of ways that we um that we do this kind of thing already so the, the key thing would just be to to think about extending that ethic to other products that we know to be dangerous, like SUVs, for example. I mean, these are a a major driver of of the rise in emissions from transportation over the past uh, decade, right? I mean, this is... Um, this is this is dangerous in terms of our future, but is dangerous in terms of the present right now for global South countries that are that are suffering the worst effects of climate breakdown. So this is also unjust, and and I think we have to be able to have an ethical conversation about um, about this without getting you know up in arms about individual freedom and so on. I mean, in a way, we sort of saw this play out during the pandemic, right? Like your individual freedom to not wear a mask conflicts with my individual freedom to remain healthy. And uh, and so we have to be more mature, I think, about, about this conversation, especially given the stakes that, you know, at hand. Yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, when we hear degrowth, I guess one of the ideas that gets associated with it as well is this idea of belt tightening, and we've all got to tighten our belts. Um, what would you say, just before we finish, maybe on this particular part of the discussion, or one or two other uh misguided uh, ideas we've probably touched on a, a couple of the key ones about degrowth that you'd, you'd like to clarify Jason. oh yeah so um yeah so the question of belt tightening or austerity right this is um this is a very strange accusation because um you know austerity is 
a feature of capitalist economies that are organized around growth, right? So it's very strange to accuse degrowth of something like this when um, when uh, it's it's just not the case. So let me explain. Um, when, when a growth-oriented economy fails to get growth or has a crisis of some kind, then the response is to impose austerity. And austerity means um, specifically uh, cutting public spending and quite often cutting uh, wages, particularly through the public sector, um, in order to get growth going again. So in order to impose more competitive um, pressures on workers and in order to privatize sectors of the economy so that you know, corporations can buy them up and uh, commodify them, et cetera, et cetera. This all leads to GDP growth. So austerity is a growthist, um, is a growthist policy. <laughs> what degrowth calls for is exactly the opposite. It calls for, um, for reversing austerity by investing in public services and public goods to expand people's access to the resources they need to live well, expand people's access to livelihoods um, uh, precisely so as to make additional growth unnecessary. Right, and this is—I can't emphasize this point enough. Um, it's exactly the opposite of austerity logic. Um, now, look, I understand uh, that some people um, believe that the framing of degrowth um, uh, is problematic, in that people immediately uh, have these misconceptions that then have to be explained. Um, but that's okay, in, in the sense of, uh, you know, the process of of triggering questions like this is important because explanations are important and we have to have a conversation about what's really going on here. And what I like about the term degrowth is that um, is that it, uh, it really goes to the heart of our deep assumptions about how the economy should operate and opens up questions about those assumptions and forces us to think more critically about them. Um, and particularly once you recognize uh, what growth is all about, namely, what, you know, what is behind growth, processes of extraction, labor exploitation, uh, enclosure, privatization, commodification, and specifically elite accumulation, um, then maybe we're less likely to get behind that and call for a different kind of economy, one that is less about commodification, less about enclosure, and more about human well-being. And so, you know, I think that degrowth opens these conversations and is useful toward that end. That being said, um, you know, I think that people should decide when and where it's useful to use. It's clearly useful in academic uh, conversations because it has a specific meaning. Um, but in terms of politics, uh, you know, I, I have no interest in uh, encouraging a politician to use this term publicly. Um, I think that the key thing here is not widespread adoption of the term, but widespread adoption of the policies, namely, um, uh, you know, namely um, actively scaling down excess resource and energy use and decommodifying survival so that people can live flourishing lives without additional economic growth. These are the key things that we need, totally irrespective of the framing. And, and totally irrespective of what, what we call it, as you say, how urgently do we need this? Do, we, do you think, do we need people out in the street today? Do we need people, you know, uh, how, how radical within what kind of time frame is this necessary? You talked about the difference between a depression and so forth. But, you know, the, the scaling down industries and so forth, the kind of social integration changes, all that kind of thing, it takes time. What kind of time frame are you operating under, Jason? Well, I mean, it depends on what you're talking about specifically. So, in the case in the case of cl of climate breakdown, there's very clear timelines at stake, um, and so we do actually need high income nations to start actively scaling down fossil fuels and energy use and aggregate to enable a rapid transition to renewables. Um, so that has to happen pretty quickly, and that should be part of our climate demands. And this is why I think that you know the Biden plan is is, is in fact not enough. I mean, yes, it's exciting, but it's not enough. 
Um, and uh, so, and, in, and then in terms of resource use, uh, you know, look, um, we are on the precipice of the sixth mass extinction events in our planet's history. Most of that is being driven by excess resource use, specifically, you know, uh, conversion of habitat to, um, to industrial agriculture, specifically for industrial beef. So, uh, so yeah, I think that, you know, reducing resource use in key sectors is really important because we share this, this planet with millions of other species um, on whom we also depend. Uh, and, um, and we need to honor that relationship and rethink, uh, you know, how we treat the living world. Uh, so, you know, how, it, it depends on, on you, how, how urgent you think that question is, but to me, it is quite urgent. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. Now, what does degrowth look like for India, China, huge growing populations, tremendous amount of poverty? Oh, yeah, no. So uh, again, I should specify, as I've been um, clarifying throughout, degrowth is uh, targeted at global north nations, which have extremely high levels of resource and energy use. It, it is not for the global south. <laughs> um, in the global south, we know that, uh, that, that in, in most low-income countries, in, in all low-income country, uh, countries, an increase in resource and energy use is necessary to meet human needs. And clearly, the industrial capacity of low-income countries also has to be increased to enable... Um, uh, you know, to enable domestic uh, development. So that's important. Um, population is not the problem here. I want to emphasize that. So, um, you know, yes, India and Africa have large populations, um, but they are well within their per capita um, share of planetary boundaries, well within them. The, the ecological crisis is being driven almost exclusively by, um, by excess resource use in rich nations. So we have to be clear about this. Um, now, what now, now? Crucially, what degrowth calls for again is a dramatic convergence in resource and energy use between the global north and the global south, right? So, a reduction um, in the global north to bring economies back into line with sustainable principles, and an increase in the global south to meet human needs, such that resource and energy use converges at a level that is that is consistent with universal uh, human welfare and ecological stability, right? That's, um, that's the vision we're calling for. Now, now, China is an interesting borderline case because China actually has very high levels of resource use, albeit still significantly lower than, um, than uh, Western nations. Um, and so China is in a place where I think they should start thinking about adopting post-growth principles. Um, you know, uh, instead of um, pursuing growth as aggressively as they have presently been doing, have, re have recently been doing, to organize the economy instead around a fair distribution of income, China has very high inequality, um, and universal provision of public services. Uh, so, and, and that can be done with a lot less energy and resources than China presently uses. So I would advocate for post-growth policies in, in China. 
um, but definitely degrowth in the rich countries of the global north. Right. Very interesting. Of course, India and China uh, in particular are, are on a particular economic trajectory on the face of it right now in terms of, you know, economic growth, in terms of personal consumption, in terms of, you know, all of the things that, that this idea of modernization is deeply embedded, I guess, in, 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 in there as well. So these are issues down the road that they're going to have to face as well a big question i guess to 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 to, to think about now i, I saw the uh, irish president recently <laughs> i think is it did he become the first western uh head of state but but they, they're talking about a post-growth steady stage uh eco-social economy um uh, what, what 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 do you think are, are, what other countries are making significant moves on this front jason yeah i mean to me that was that was so exciting to see right um and the speech that he made about this was just brilliant. And I encourage your listeners to take a look. I mean, this this man is clearly an intellectual who's got his finger on the pulse of the latest research in ecological economics. So that's amazing. Um, uh, other countries, yeah. So, you know, we know that, it, um, gosh, was it a year or two ago now? New Zealand's uh, made the announcement that they would be abandoning GDP growth as an objective for the governments. Um, that announcement was received with a lot of excitement around the world. I mean, this went viral, you know, um, like few other things do in terms of economic policy and was immediately followed by similar um, uh, commitments from, from the governments of Scotland and Iceland. Now, we'll see what this looks like in, in, in practice, but, um, but these, are, these are active, open commitments to post-growth policy. And that's, that's brilliant. That's amazing to see. Um, similar ideas have been uh, kicking around in the global south for a while. I mean, Bhutan is an obvious one, but also Bolivia and Ecuador, where um, strong political factions have been demanding post-growth ideas. Um, so that's exciting to see. Uh, of course, we're just at the beginning of this kind of movement, and I think that um, that you know that as we see further developments in New Zealand and uh, elsewhere. This will open up the Overton window for other countries to follow suit. I should mention there's a really interesting organization called the Wellbeing Economies Alliance, um, which is fantastic to take a look at. What they've been trying to do is, um, is, is create alliances and solidarities between cities and regional governments and national governments that are thinking about well-being economics principles uh, towards developing these ideas further. I think that's, you know, this, this kind of internationalism, I think, is really important. Right, very interesting. Uh, we've touched on this. I just want want to uh, see what, whether you something to say specifically in terms of uh, growth and corporate capitalism. I mean, we talk about the nation state. We talk about you know economic growth and how it's seen to uh, well, it gets fetishized in the in the in the media, in in, in the financial media, and it's seen to be associated with all kinds of good things and the difference between two percent and three percent economic growth and employment and all of the kind of things that come come with that. But what about corporate capitalism itself, where you know? Uh, and the role of, of, of corporations, uh, this you know, fiduciary role to maximize uh, returns and uh, shareholder returns, and underlying that or driving that, you know, the, the financial superstructure, which is uh, you know driving this as well. Yeah, what's interesting is that okay, you know what? In interestingly, I've um, I have spoken to a lot of CEOs in some cases of quite large companies. Uh, and what I hear from them is that they feel trapped, almost like in a straitjacket in this growthist economy, in the sense that they are subject to growth imperatives in their companies, um, whether or not they actually want those, you know, those to be there. I mean, these are human beings, right? Who have, um, who have, uh, who are intelligent, have complex ideas about the world, and who wants to do good in the world, etc. And yet they feel 
um, constrained in their ability to do good because they have to return value to shareholders and uh, grow their their profits every year in order to keep investors happy, et cetera, et cetera. Right? That's a lot of pressure. So, you know, um, these are structural problems actually, and I think that we should think about uh, post growth. Um, ideas as liberating us from the rigid constraints of growthism, right? And this is interesting, right? Like um, our growth-based economic model is uh, is about 500 years old. It was it was developed in medieval times. <laughs> uh, why are we so insistent on dragging it doggedly into the 21st century when it is clearly not fit for purpose anymore um, on the planet, on the beautiful planet that we share? <laughs> Surely we can come up with better ideas and. Uh, and there are better ideas out there uh, in terms of how businesses should operate, um, focused on on uh, on social outcomes, uh, on meeting human needs rather than on perpetual expansion. Uh, and there's interesting research being done right now by PhD students in ecological economics, looking at um, at potential business models for a post growth economy. To me, that's really exciting. Yeah, I, I, you say that, and I know uh, is it uh, uh, the CEO City Group. Uh, at the time of the financial crash that as long as the music's playing you've got to get up and dance and you do hear uh, this as a recurring theme that the, the regulatory structures within which corporations operate you know do determine what they can and can't do to some degree and this is you know as you say a structural issue um, a very important one as well um just maybe moving looking forward uh coming to the end now jason thank you uh cop 26 uh, a, a big moment um we were talking before about that you know the, the role of corporations and so forth um there there, there seems to be again that m word i won't say but momentum t- t- taking this idea of of uh, natural capital um, and uh, financial markets, nature-based solutions, these kind of ideas uh, coming to the fore, uh, and 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 at, at, at you know at the top of the agenda uh, for the COP26 is the developing carbon mar- market mechanisms. Uh, have you any thoughts on on, on any expectations on COP26 and what 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 trends we're seeing or what 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 you'd hope for there? Yeah, so I mean, I I, I fully agree with you, Fergal, that there's momentum and that's exciting to see, and I'm so glad that it's happening because I um I wasn't sure whether to expect that. So I certainly expect improvement on existing national commitments, um, but I also expect uh, a big gap uh, between those commitments and the necessary ambition that we need to see, right? And Again, I want to emphasize that I think we need to be able to call that gap out <laughs> where, where we see it. Um, so, so, so that's one thing I expect. The second thing I expect is that um, I think that social movements across the world uh, will be, but specifically in the global South, will be ramping up calls for climate justice um, and will be ramping up calls for degrowth in the global North. So I expect this conversation to, to gain more traction. Um, I think that you know, in our uh, in our media environment right now, it's um, you know it's 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 easier for us to access perspectives from the global south, and it's very clear that people are extremely upset at the injustice of um, of existing climate commitments. Uh, you know, um, I want to emphasize that uh, that you know in the global north we think about the challenge of climate breakdown primarily in terms of technology. In the global south, they think about the challenge of climate breakdown primarily in terms of justice, um, and we need to be able to integrate that kind of thinking more into our policymaking, uh, into our own social movement demands, into our own uh, um, political uh, discourse. 
Can I ask one question? I'm going to put it back into the middle and then I'll ask you the final question. But just this question. Um, what is the connection between degrowth and climate justice? Well, uh, <laughs> not the right way of framing it. I, what I want to talk about is, is this question of justice. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah. It might just be in terms of climate justice. What's a better way of framing that question earlier in the discussion? Because I realized we talked a little bit about it, but didn't really highlight the degree to which that's not something that's really... Uh, being in a policy sense, it's on people's mind, but not really getting manifesting as it were. Yes, yes, right. So, uh, okay, let's. A good way to frame that. Do you think? Well, let's think about. Okay, uh, in terms of your framing, I'll let you decide on that later. But I, but I can speak to but I can speak yes. to the question. Um, so uh, so the main thing to recognize here is that the majority of high income nations have already exceeded their fair share of the one point five and two degree carbon budgets. Okay. Um, and so when we talk about keeping emissions under 1.5 or 2 degrees in a fair and just way, um, high-income nations have already exceeded that. And so it's, it's imperative um, on them to reduce emissions as quickly as possible because any additional emissions from this point on um, are effectively colonizing the, the, the fair share of carbon budgets for other nations. And that is, that is highly unjust, uh, right? I mean, you know, every additional ton of carbon that a global North country, uh, a global North country emits is a ton of carbon that cannot be emitted within the global South to meet human needs, um, while remaining within the carbon budget, right? So this is, this is a problem. Uh, and this is not part of our discourse in the global North and it should be, you know, we need to recognize that continued uh, emissions and high-income nations represent a kind of atmospheric colonization, which has disproportionate impacts on the poorest people in the poorest countries in the world who have contributed nothing to this crisis, right? So what are, you know, what's required of high-income nations given this is uh, the fastest possible reduction of emissions to zero, um, not by 2050, but significantly more ambitious uh, than that. And, um, and we know that 2030 is possible, is technologically possible, if high-income nations reduce energy use. So that's what we need to be calling for. Uh, what evidence is there for that, Justin? Sorry, you said that before. We know it's technologically possible. Oh, yes. Well, because look, I mean, the only reason that we're, that we're saying it's so difficult to, to achieve rapid emissions reductions right now is because high-income nations have extremely high levels of energy use, right? So, um, and this is, this is simple to understand. The more energy you use, the more difficult it is to supply that with renewables. And so if you have a mountainous quantity of energy demands, then you're going to need a mountainous quantity of renewable energy. And that takes time to mobilize and to, um, and to integrate, right? So the less energy you use, the quicker you can do it. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, most, uh, you know, many high income nations already have enough renewable energy capacity to supply um, energy sufficient to meet human needs at a high standard. But instead, we're, we have to mobilize additional capacity so that we can produce things like SUVs and arms and private jets and fast fashion, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So this is not this is not yeah. a, a logical use of energy in a time of crisis. Um, especially right. given the justice dimensions that are at stake. So, what, what, what's the research there that shows that to to achieve for for was it at at, at high standards that, that we we could do that? Oh yes, this is a, re a recent study that came out. Um, gosh, was it this year actually? Maybe maybe last year by um, by a number of ecological economists. I can send this to you, but it's basically a global scenario for energy use consistent with um, with meeting human needs at a high level. So, I mean, I'm talking about uh, universal healthcare, education, public transportation, computing, telecommunications, water, electricity, housing, et cetera. 
um, all of that can be accomplished with uh, 80% less energy use than high-income nations presently use. Um, so there's lots of room for us to scale down energy use. Um, and within a decade, Justin, the kind of change. Jason, my name is Jason. Sorry. Jason. <laughs> Um, you didn't have to say that, Jason. I know who you are. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, um, you're talking about that within like eight or nine years. Yes, but it's an extraordinary level of social change. I mean, it's unprecedented. I mean, it's unprecedented. structures re retain coherence. Uh, there's so much potential for injustice. There's, you know, ha ha does this research look at the kinds of social changes that are required to make this happen? Look, I mean, clearly it does require unprecedented social change, um, but we've been through periods of unprecedented, you know, unprecedented, uh, unprecedented social change before. And again, I think that wartime mobilization is an example of that. Um, you know, when you, you when you're fighting the existential threat of the Nazis, let's say, you don't plan to defeat the Nazis in 2050, right? You plan to defeat the Nazis next year. So, so you need you need mobilization commensurate. This, this military metaphors, it's 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 it, you know, if we're looking at even under the best case scenarios, you're talking about decades before we're going to see carbon emissions, you know, carbon in the atmosphere falling. So it's not we're not going to see it. You know, we're not going to see the the impact. We're going to be told that, you know, some variables have changed. You know, you can pull do that for how long can you do that? Can you do that for decades to tell people that we're on a war mobilization and that, you know, and, and there, nobody's going to necessarily see the results of that. We're still going to have precarious weather. We're still going to have these things. And, 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 and we're going to be looking at what, uh, you know, figures on, 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 on some kind of national, you know, breakdown of our latest carbon emissions. It, it, this kind of military metaphor that, you know, the war, it, 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 it can be problematic as well. Look, so I'm, I'm using the, the military metaphor here simply as an analogy to rapid, you know, to rapid mobilization that's happened in the past. So we don't have to use war metaphors for the climate crisis. I'm not suggesting that at all. In fact, I don't particularly like them. You were asking about precedent, and so I gave you an example of precedent. But, but look, there's a better way to answer your question, which is you're trying to say that the kinds of changes that degrowth calls for, um, uh, you know, how can you achieve that in a decade, uh, right? What I'm trying to say is, is the opposite, that the existing plan is the one that's not fast enough, the one that is, that is not, it's not possible to accomplish the kinds of emissions directions we need um, at the speed we need to under the existing arrangement. And so degrowth is the fast plan. Reducing energy use is the way to achieve rapid emissions reductions. Um, and I should emphasize to clarify the, in terms of the question you're asking, no, at this point, we're not talking about um, uh, you know, removing CO2 concentrations from the atmosphere. That is certainly going to be far down the road. Um, we're talking about trying to stay within uh, carbon budgets agreed in international negotiations under the Paris Agreement, right? That's what's at stake here. Yes, CO2 concentrations are going to continue to increase, um, you know, for the, the, the next 30 years. Um, but uh, but we need to make sure that that's by 2050 globally, they're at zero. And the way to make this happen is for high-income nations to scale down energy use. You optimistic, Jason? You know, I have a kind of optimism of the intellect. <laughs> no, let's let's put it this way. Um, yeah, optimism of the intellect, which is a strange way to put it, I suppose. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that we know that these are these are things that are possible to achieve, and so I'm optimistic in that sense. Um, it's a question of political, you know, political mobilization. Um, I don't see the the political mobilization that's necessary for this emerging right now, but. 
it could certainly happen in the near future. Um, to me, the key question is the extent to which the environmentalist movement, and I have in mind things like Extinction Rebellion um, and Fridays for Future, et cetera, can align with and create alliances with uh, with working class formations, you know, like labor unions, and also with social movements from the global south. Um, uh, an alliance between these three factions would enable, um, I think, pretty dramatic uh, social and, pl and political change. Um, we've seen dramatic change on this level happen uh, in the past with, say, the anti-colonial struggle, the abolition movements, uh, the civil rights movement, et cetera. These are the kind of alliances that are necessary for that to happen. Um, Look, Extinction Rebellion can uh, can block, you know, can close down uh, roads in central London. And that's persuasive to a certain extent. And certainly they have changed the conversation in the UK. Um, and I support them immensely for that. Um, but, uh, but working class formations and unions have the power to shut down the economy, uh, you know, in, in defense of their demands which is much more persuasive. <laughs> so, so we do need working class uh, movements on board. Um, and the way to get them on board is to, is to focus on the positive vision of a just economy that is organized around meeting human needs with full employments and uh, full access to livelihoods and full access to universal public services so that we can have a conversation about scaling down sectors of the economy that purely serve the interests of capital and not human well-being. It's a great vision, Jason. What's next for you? Less is more has been very successful. I think it's done very well. It's 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 brought these ideas into a uh, public domain. It's explained it in, in very simple terms and gets to the heart of these questions. W what are you working on now? Well, I have several papers that I'm sort of that I'm sort of working on right now, and those should be out soon. But but more broadly, um, you know, my original passion uh, has to do with global justice issues and. Um, I want to connect that increasingly to the ecological crisis. And so I want to write more on, um, on the reality of ecological colonialism and how that plays out in the world economy. So that's probably what I'll be focusing on next. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, Jason. And thank you so much for your time today and the great work you're doing. Thank you, Fergal. Thanks. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Aaron Stibbe's book, Ecolinguistics, Language, Ecology, and the Stories We Live By which has recently been published in a second edition. This groundbreaking book reveals the stories that underpin unequal and unsustainable societies and searches for inspirational forms of language that can help rebuild a kinder, more ecological world. It's supported by a free online course called The Stories We Live By. Just type the name into Google and you can find it. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.